You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Good morning. A couple of notes on the video, kind of before I, I jump in. Uh, Guy put that together for us. I'd ask him to do something. I thought that uh, makes a, a great point. And the main point is this. Just because you see something on television does not mean you ought to believe it. <clears throat> you know, whether it's info commercials or sometimes things you hear in messages. Um, not trying to shoot at anyone. I, you know, those... Uh, pastors they had on there they they, you know they're probably authentic believers as far as being christians but at the same time uh you need to be careful about adopting everything you hear on television as your doctrinal foundation or the basis for everything that you believe um joel osteen that was shown there if you notice what he was saying kind of made it sound like if you know if you know christ and you're right with god then you're going to have total victory in your life over everything uh, and not have a lot of issues that we tend to have, you know, for some reason. Uh, so I'm just going to address that real quickly. And if you want to see it in more detail, you can kind of go to my, my Facebook or whatever and look at a little video that Mark Drisco uh, put up about it. But that is not right because if you even look at the experience of Jesus himself, you know, Jesus... Uh, was born into a world, uh, came God in the flesh, uh, didn't have a place to lay his head. He, he was hated by people that he came to. Uh, you know, he, he experienced hunger. He experienced people rejecting him. Not just Jesus, look at Paul's experience, look at the, the heroes of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, if you read what those guys went through, I, I don't know too many of the people that we see on television will be raising their arm, lining up, saying, saw me asunder, you know, cut me in half, you know, and, and kinds of things that they, they went through. <clears throat> just to kind of boil that back down to why we're talking about what we're talking about this month, uh, the more... I see things like that, and, and even the more I kind of talk to people, uh, I, I realize that there's a great need for people to be taught doctrine, for people to understand why they believe what they believe, and that's why we're doing this series. Now, up front, I, I want to tell you, I'm kind of pumped about it because it's really good stuff. Uh, it may not be as, quote, entertaining as, as some things, but this is really good stuff that we all need to know, the church needs to know, uh, stuff we apply to our lives, not just head knowledge. It needs to affect our hearts. So I'm pumped about that part of it. I want to tell you also, I'm a little bit stressed because this series will probably uh, be as, it requires much energy and study and preparation on my behalf as anything that we've ever done. Uh, before. And, and already just from this first week, I feel like I'm back in Bible college, okay, uh, because of that. But uh, what we're going to talk about for the next nine weeks, and that'll take us uh, up until the, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to talk about doctrine, what we should believe. Uh, some of the things we're going to talk about, uh, today's topic is, is this, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, who, who is God, uh, and talk about the Trinity as we do that. We're also going to be talking about, you know, why the Bible, that's next week. In other words, God's revelation, why, you know, did he see fit to even speak to us and, 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 and give us his word? And I've thought a lot about that just this week. I, I'm convinced that maybe, uh, maybe to a certain degree, we're so busy in our culture and, and everything like that, or after you've been a believer for a while, there's a tendency to just take for granted some things, like to take for granted that God would even speak to us. I mean, that God chose to, to give us his word. That's what this is. Not just some book, and I'll deal with that a lot next week, but anytime you pick up the Bible and read the Bible, it's the holy God that created all the universe choosing to let you know stuff about himself and that ought to thrill us we shouldn't ever get over the fact that god wanted to speak to us 
Uh, we're going to talk about, about creation, you know, where we come from. Uh, we're going to talk about what our problem is, the fall of man. We're going to talk about uh, some stuff that God knows, and really we're going to look at predestination uh, that Sunday as we're on that topic. Uh, we're going to talk about what makes Jesus different, the incarnation, the fact that he's God in the flesh. We're going to talk about why would God die the Sunday before Easter and deal with salvation. Easter Sunday... We're going to talk about the mission of the church. I know some people think, well, why don't you talk about you know, the crucifixion on Easter Sunday? Here's why. I want all the people that only come at Christmas and Easter when they come in to be confronted with what they ought to be doing as a Christian. You know, they've, they've heard the message of Jesus being crucified. As a result of that, there's a mission that the church has that, that we ought to be involved with. And then we're going to close it out by talking about the kingdom. You know, what is the, the kingdom? The fact that God reigns for all eternity. And we'll look at that the, the Sunday after Easter. So, like I said, a lot of good topics. Let me tell you this up front. I, I want you to understand that you do not need to come to this series, and I hope you didn't come today or any other Sundays, expecting to be told everything that you need to know about doctrine or what you believe. And here's why. Neither myself or anybody else can do that. Okay? Not in the amount of time we have in, in these services, not even if we spent the whole nine weeks just here and just, you know, ordered food in and stayed here and studied the whole time. I don't have the capacity. There's no one else that has the capacity to fully expound to you everything that the Bible fully teaches about doctrine. So today our, our topic is this. Today we're going to talk about who is God. And we're going to do it by approaching this uh, thought of the Trinity. Now, what I just said, I will repeat again. If you think today that I'm going to fully tell you everything there is to know about God, you're crazy, okay? <laughs> and here's why again. I don't have the capacity to do so. There's no one that has capacity. He, he's chosen to reveal himself some things to us. We can look at some things he's clearly revealed to us. But there's no one that has God completely, totally figured out. And if you hear tell someone trying to, someone trying to tell you that, whether it be face-to-face -face or on television, if they try to come across like they have God completely, totally figured out, they are either lying to you, or they are deluded about their own cognitive abilities, okay? About how much they can understand themselves. So as we look today at who is God and talk about the, the Trinity, that's how we're approaching. In other words, we're going to look at God as the Bible teaches some things about Him as being uh, the Trinity or the, the triune God or the Trinitarian God, for some of you theologians out there uh, that may have heard some of those terms before. That's what we're going to be looking at. Our send-off text today, and I'll kind of come back to it a couple of times, uh, is this. It's found in, in Matthew uh, in a, when Jesus was being baptized. And the Bible says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. <clears throat> And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now I want you to notice something in that text. Clearly, you have all parts of the Trinity shown in this passage of Scripture. They're all there at the same time. They're all actively doing something. And that's significant because I'll, I'll come to this in a, later on in the message. Some people kind of believe that there's one God and he just kind of morphs himself, you know, into the Holy Spirit or morphs himself uh, in, into Jesus. But here, simultaneously, you have God the Son being baptized. You have God the Spirit descending from heaven. And you have God the Father speaking from heaven. And they're all three active and involved at the same time. 
Now, some people scoff at a, a doctrine called the Trinity. There are some denominations, uh, churches out there that try and scoff at it and say it's not true. Uh, one of the reasons they will do it is because of this verse and other verses, but primarily this verse found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So people will point at that and say, well, the Trinity can't be true. If God is only one, then surely it's just the Father that's God, and Jesus is something less, like a created being. Or, or the Spirit is kind of just, you know, like a, you know, just like a, a spirit, an impersonal force, and, and not really, you know, God. Well, <clears throat> the problem comes is that they fail to understand that the Hebrew word that's translated one is a Hebrew word echad. And the word literally means this, a collective cluster. It means united. So even when the Bible, when God chose to say this, in the original Hebrew language, God said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As he's inspiring Moses to write this down, the word one literally means a collective group or something that's united. Now, some people have explained this or tried to explain it kind of in the, in the wrong way. Some people try and explain the Trinity as an egg. Have you ever heard anyone try to explain the Trinity as an egg? That's not a good illustration, and here's why. I understand why they do it, because in an egg you have the shell, and then you have the, the embryonic fluid, and then you've got the fetus, or you've got the shell, and the white, and you've got the yolk. But if you were to take those three elements apart... And scientifically look at them, the shell is made up differently than the fluid, and both are made up differently than the yolk. They're not exactly the same substance if you were to test each one. So you see, that's not a good illustration because the Bible teaches that all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are of the same substance. They are all God, equally God. So maybe a better way to illustrate it, and I don't know if there's any perfect way to illustrate it, because to be honest with you, the Trinity is something that ought to blow your mind. I don't think anybody can completely figure it out. A lot of the doctrines we'll look at, like predestination and things like that, you might not can rationalize it in your mind. Hey, I have no problem with that. That simply means we have a big enough God that we can't figure him out. That's a good thing, you know? But maybe a better way to illustrate it would be, since it means a collective cluster, would it be to think about a group of three grapes in one cluster. Three grapes in one cluster. Because all three of the grapes are the exact same substance. If you were to look at each three of them, they're made up of the exact same substance. There's three, but it's it's one, one cluster. And that's not even a perfect illustration, but that's just to give you an idea. As we try and go a little bit deeper into this and ask who is God and look at the Trinity, we're just going to ask several questions today and try and answer these questions. Question number one, since we're talking about the Trinity, is simply this. What is the Trinity? What is meant by the Trinity? You need to understand up front, if you read your Bible and look for the word Trinity, you won't find it. It's not in the Bible. The word's not there. But the concept of the Trinity is from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. While the word is not there, the doctrine is clearly there. A guy by the name of Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, he lived from AD 155 to 220. He's one of the first ones that they can find to give credit to the word Trinity, using it to describe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, you may already be asking yourself, well, why study something like this? Here's why you ought to study it. It's a glorious truth that God has revealed about himself. And and anything that God reveals about himself to us is worthy of us spending time time on. So let me ask you another question then. First of all, what, what is not the Trinity? You know, what, what does the Trinity not mean? 
Well, some things that is not meant by the Trinity is this. The Trinity does not mean that there are three gods. Because the Bible clearly says there's one God. And this is where it blows your mind. There's one God and yet there's three. You know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it's not teaching that there are three different gods. And we'll deal with, you know, like multiple gods here in just a moment. So it's not teaching that. Neither is it teaching that one God is merely manifested in three different ways or three different modes. That's not what the Bible is teaching about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, there would just be times that He would appear and manifest as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not either what is meant by the, by the Trinity. It's not what it means at all. What does the Trinity mean then? Well, as clearly as I can try and make it to you, which will fall short probably, we're going to look at some things that people have said about the Trinity and then look at, at what the Bible says some about the Trinity also. What, what does the Trinity mean? First of all, I want you to notice the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. A uh, group of people got together trying to come up with statements that people could understand uh, back in 1647, and uh, the confession of faith they came up with regarding the Trinity is this. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons of one substance, not three spirits, not you know three modes. Three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. Now, to give you a little bit more of a uh, contemporary definition on that, uh, Mark Driscoll, Mark wrote a book <clears throat> on doctrine about two years ago uh, that came out. Just, there's plenty of books on doctrine. Uh, it's just one of the newer ones that's out, a little bit easier to read maybe than, than some. When I was in Bible college, I was looking, and I'll actually bring up a quote later on from Hodge's Systematic Theology. Hodge's Systematic Theology is three volumes with print so small, even though I was 28 years old, I went and got reading glasses. Because I was having such eye strain trying to read all that stuff. Uh, but Mark Driscoll in his book on, on doctrine says this, The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. They've all always been there. They'll all always be there. The Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation to each other. One's not necessarily over the other. They're all three eternally God in relation to each other. Now, that's just some, some definitions I want you to look at. Now, when he says person, I want you to understand something. He's not saying all three became flesh like Jesus became flesh. He's talking about a person as far as uh, thinking, acting, feeling, speaking, uh, that type of mindset. He, he, by him saying a person, he's saying they're individual persons, not some kind of impersonal force. Because God is not an impersonal force. He cared enough to send his son to die on the cross for us. That's not impersonal at all. Why is the Trinity, let me, well, go to the next slide first. Uh, each are equally God, uh, each share all the divine attributes. In other words, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each share eternality, omniscience, that means they know everything, omnipotence, that means all-powerful, uh, omnipresence means everywhere at the same time. All, of, all the characteristics that belong to God the Father, as you might think of God the Father, belong to God the Son and and God the Spirit, okay? Why is it so hard to understand then? Why, why is it so difficult? Because there's one God in these three persons, and, and they're all equally God, and yet there's not three gods, and it's almost like concepts that, like I said, that blow your mind. You can't necessarily factor it into an equation like we can, maybe some normal human things that we deal with. Why is it so hard to understand? Maybe for this reason. Maybe God revealed it to us just to thrill us with who He is. Maybe God revealed Himself as a Trinity just to, to help us understand that He is beyond figuring out. 
That he is so huge and so great. And instead of allowing that to be something that discourages us because it's hard to understand, it ought to be something we're excited about because God is that big. I think a lot of times we look at it the wrong way. Another quote by a fellow by the name of J.I. Packer. Uh, He's a a famous theologian from uh, just in the last century. Uh, He said this, the historical formulation. I just like the way these guys write. Huh? Y'all read some of the Puritan writers. Because you'll sit there and you'll read it and you'll think, what did he say? And, and you'll read it again and you'll read it again. And yet, you know, in our human pride, we like to think we're evolving into something better and we can't even understand today some things they wrote years ago. God, maybe disproves evolution a little, you know. The historical formulation of the Trinity seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery, not explain it. That is beyond us. In other words, it's something that God reveals to us. He wants us to believe it by faith. It's not that he's going to explain it like 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the realization, the truth of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult fault the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It may not be easy, but it's true. If you'll think about it, Jesus, God becoming flesh, going to the cross to die for our sins, taking his life back up, that which we put our faith for our eternity upon, that doesn't seem like it makes sense, but we believe it by faith. Genesis says in the very first of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you'll just believe that and get that down right, you don't have trouble believing everything else. So it doesn't have to be logical to be true. God wants us to accept him by faith and to believe by faith that he is exactly who he claims to be. One God, three persons. What are some doctrinal truths then about the Trinity? Let's uh, just go through some doctrinal truths real quick. And here we're going to look at a lot of verses. There's no, I, I, I'm sorry, guys, there's no other way to do this but bring up a lot of verses. Because you need to know what the Bible says, not what I say, okay? When it comes down to these doctrinal things. So this part of the message today, really heavy, a lot of verses we're going to look at. What are some doctrinal truths uh, about the Trinity? Uh, here's the first one. There is only one true God. There is only one true God. Look at some verses uh, that prove that. We were in Deuteronomy 4 earlier. Uh, Here's some other verses in Deuteronomy 4. You were shown these things so that you may know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. And then down in verse 39 in the same chapter, Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. The Bible clearly teaches there is only one true God. Now, instantly someone's going to think in their mind probably, well, what about the other gods that the Bible talks about? Well, I want you to remember something. The Bible calls them false gods, right? All those gods that were there in uh, the promised land when Israel came in and, you know, took over and God brought them in and gave them the land. Molech, all the other gods you hear about, Balaam, they, they were all false gods. But the Bible also teaches this, and this might be something you've never been told before. You might have overlooked in Scripture. People believed in them because there were demonic influences taking place. <clears throat> Look at the next verse. They sacrificed to demons, which are not gods. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. In other words, not the eternal everlasting God. Gods your fathers did not fear. In other words, the Bible is saying here this. The false gods that people worship were actually demons that manifested themselves in some way, some power, and people thought, oh, that must be a God. And they were sacrificing and offering and serving them, but the Bible says they sacrificed to demons, to, to fallen angels when Satan fell, those that fell with him. That's what the Bible teaches. That's how you answer other gods if someone ever brings up that question. What about other gods? 
Second thing, second doctrinal truth I want you to get is this. There's no one like God. Not just does the Bible teach there's only one God. There's no one like God. No one that compares, no one that can compare, no one that can become God. A lot of verses that we can look at, but here in in Exodus, a little bit of background of the verse I'm going to read. You know, God's doing all all these mighty plagues and things like that in Egypt. The word Pharaoh will be willing to let God's people go. The ones being talked about here, there are going to be frogs all over the place. And Pharaoh, you know, even, even when Moses asked him, when do you want me to do away with the frogs? It's going to be in your ovens and all over the place like that. Pharaoh said, tomorrow. I don't know, guys, if I went home and I had frogs in my oven, frogs in my bed, frogs all over the floor, frogs in the refrigerator, and someone that could do something about it asked me, when do you want to get rid of it? I don't think I'd say tomorrow. But he said tomorrow. So Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Isaiah 14, 14 actually lets us know this. It would be satanic for you and I to try and become God. Because this is a reference to Satan. It has a dual-fold application. It dealt with immediate prophecy, but it also dealt with the past truth. You remember Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning? Well, this is what's talking about in Isaiah. Satan got lifted up in his pride. Satan is not a God. Satan is a created being. And he used, most theologians believe, to kind of have some big responsibility, maybe of helping to lead and worship in heaven. And he's called beautiful and everything like that in the Bible. So he got lifted up in pride within his own heart. And he said, I'll ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, for a more contemporary translation, Satan was saying, I'm going to go to heaven, kick God off the throne, and I'm going to sit on the throne. So there's, there's no one like God, and it's even satanic for anyone to try and become God. And there are actually some denominations out there, such as Mormonism, that try to teach that you can become a God yourself and have your own world and rule your own little universe. That's the same attitude that Satan had. I saw someone shaking their head like, man, that's crazy. Here, here, let me just go ahead while we're on this. Let me show you how crazy that really is. They believe that there's a father God and a mother God in heaven initially, and they had celestial sex. And that's why they believed in having more than one wife, because their mentality is you've got to have as many kids as possible for the souls of all the offspring, spiritual offspring of father God, mother God, to come and live on the earth what they believe. I'm just telling you what they believe. I'm not shooting at them. I'm telling you what their own doctrine says. And they believe that you, by following what they tell you, can become a God yourself, go have your own planet, your own celestial godmother, and have spiritual being kids. That's um, what they believe. Sounds a little bit connected to uh, sex craze to me, but our culture's like that. I'm sorry. It's so our culture. Seems to be. Thirdly, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally declared throughout the Bible. In other words, all through the Bible, you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit being equally declared. Here's some examples of that. We'll look at some verses. Here's another example. I read you an example to start with in Matthew where you had Jesus being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending, God the Father speaking, showing all three. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called, one Lord, that is speaking about Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here in the New Testament, we're told once again, there's God the Father, God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit. He got an example of all three of them. Here's an example of the Father and the Son. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word, get this, was God. The reference to Word is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. So Jesus is God. He's also creator. He's God's agent of creation. We'll see that in a moment in other verses. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So there you have in those verses a picture of God the Father and God the Son both being co-equal and God the Son having some creator responsibilities, doing things that we recognize that God the Father did. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh, once again talking about Jesus, and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory. Notice what it says. That's why I underline this stuff. The glory of the one and only. He's saying, Jesus, when you look at Him, you see the Father. If you want to see what God the Father is like, how glorious He is, look at the Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Look at some examples of Jesus claiming to be God. You see, there are actually some people out there, some Bible teachers and theologians and maybe pastors you may run into on television or other places. There are people that will claim, especially liberal theologians, they will claim Jesus never claimed to be God. Did you read your Bible? I mean, we just read verses about him being God, but Jesus himself did claim to be God. And yet people try and say he did not. Jesus said to them, my father's always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. And then notice this. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why the Jews were so upset. That's why the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of him. Now, now here's the deal with that, guys. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, or he's a heretic. You can't have it both ways. If I were to come up here one Sunday and say, Lynn Parsons is God, my wife would laugh the hardest. Along with my kids. Because you would know that's not true. But some people want to say Jesus was just a good teacher. Jesus was just a a prophet of some type. All right, then, if he is, he's one that claimed to be God, which will make him a heretic. He's either who he claimed to be or not, one of the two. I subscribe to the fact that he's God in the flesh. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Look at the next verse. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Matthew 26 Jesus remains silent. He's there in trial, being questioned. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus said, yes, it is, you, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 8, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. What did that just call Jesus. God, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So Jesus is God. What are some examples of the Holy Spirit being God? Let me give you one primary example. Plenty of others, but we don't have time for all those. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Remember the story about Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they decided that they were going to lie because they wanted pridefully to be recognized as giving money because everybody else was selling possessions and giving money. And they sold a lot of land, and they, they didn't have to give it all anyway, but they made it sound like they gave it all, so they told a lie. So Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money you were disposing? In other words, you didn't have to lie about it. You didn't have to contrive this thing to make yourself look like you're better than what you were, doing more than what you did. 
What made you think of doing such a thing? <clears throat> now notice earlier in the verse, he said you lied to the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says here at the end of verse 4. You've not lied to men, but to who? God. So the Bible clearly teaches God the Father is God. Jesus the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And to seal the deal a little bit on that, I want you to look at some examples of the Trinity being involved in creation. I I pointed out to you a minute ago, I talked about Jesus being creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God the Father, God the Son, shown there. Next verse. Then God said, let, what does it say? Me? Us. Let, let us make man in our image and our likeness. I will submit to you and let us... You accept the Trinity as being true. There is no way to explain that verse. Because it does not make any sense whatsoever for God to be talking about himself if he's one individual God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are something less than God for it to be said, let us create man in our image. The reason that phraseology is used because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is going to create man in their image. So the Bible clearly teaches that all three are involved in creation. Talking about Jesus in Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's talking about Jesus. Notice what it says. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. He is before all things. Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, this universe that the scientists think they can kind of figure out would fly all to pieces if Jesus just didn't hold it together. The Bible clearly teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are involved in creation. What are some doctrinal truths about the Trinity? Here's the last one. Then we're going to move into into something else. Uh, There's one God, but the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons, like we've seen in a couple of texts already in a lot of places in the Bible, like we saw in Matthew 3, 16 and 17 when we first started out. You clearly see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three. Okay, So that's some information about the Trinity. What is the Trinity? We just asked a bunch of questions and answered it with the Bible. Hey, that's the way you formulate your doctrine. Can I just stop and tell you that? Or as you study your Bible, and and the the way you interpret Scripture, the best way you interpret Scripture is use other verses instead of just what somebody else said. Because what somebody else says can be off base. What God says about it will never be off base. So just ask questions and look and see what the Bible says. Second thing we need to ask ourselves is this. If God is a trinity, and he is because we just looked at that, what is he like? What is the triune God like? No way I can fully explain that, as I said earlier, but let me give you three things. Number one is love. Love. The Bible clearly tells us and gives us evidence all through the Bible. But the Bible clearly tells us here, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because here's the deal with that. God is love. Now when that is said, that literally means this. God is the very definition of love. If you don't know what real love is like, you look at God and what God does and how God acts. Which, by the way, you know, if, if I want to pull that out and bring it forward a little bit into a real practical type thing, For our lives, God being love ought to teach us that love is really making a commitment to somebody. You know what we think love is? We think love is sex. We think love is the chill bumps that you'd get when you're, you know, having 
spring fever or whatever when you're in high school and you start thinking about a girl or a boy and you get chill bumps thinking about them? See, here's the deal with that. Chill bumps go away. And just the mystique of, of sex in a relationship, the mystique of that, after a time period, is not a mystery anymore. So kind of the mystique of it goes away. And if you're only going to stay in a relationship and stay married to someone as long as the sex is interesting or as long as you've got chill bumps, the relationship's not going to last. That's not a picture of love anyway. God chose to love us. I didn't deserve to be loved. You didn't deserve to be loved. God chose to love us. And if someone ever comes to me and says, well, I don't just love them anymore like they, you know, because of who they are and the way they act now, I don't love them anymore. Like I'm going to be on their side because of the way the other person is. I'm sorry. When you tell somebody, you love them, you put your own character at stake. You're the one that told them nobody made you. And if you said, I love you, and if you're going to love the way God loves, you choose to love. Over and above the issues and the things that may come up. You choose to love. I mean, that's, I mean, that's parents, kids, everything else on it. I, 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 don't know, I probably shouldn't do this. I'm going to do it anyway because it just came to mind. He, uh, one, of, one of our kind of college students put something on their Facebook this week that how, you know, she wouldn't know what she would do without her parents. I thought, man, I like that. You liked it too, didn't you, Heath and Crystal? <laughs> man, I wish more young people would get that. Because, you see, as parents, sometimes we have to be mean or whatever, you know, tell them what they can do and what they can't do. Thank God when a kid gets it and figures out, I love them. And I know they're doing that for my benefit. So, so God's love, and, and that means God's the, the definition of love. He's the example of love. He, he's the source of love. If you want a picture of love in the Trinity, here it is. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all existing eternally, eternally in a perfect relationship with each other. In a perfect community. If you want to see a community of love, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that's one of the major things I think that's taught by the Trinity. You see how these three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, can eternally live in a love relationship. That's a lesson we ought to learn from just how God is. God's also holy. Holy. The reason I put Yahweh in, in the initials that was used by the scribes to write out the word Yahweh is, is this. God, God's name is considered so holy that when the scribes were copying, making copies of the Bible, they were afraid even to write out the word Yahweh because God's name was so holy they didn't even want to write it. So they came up with these initials, YHWH, to stand for Yahweh, and that's what they would write. And God's name was so holy to them when they were copying Scripture and they would come across the word Yahweh, they would pull out a brand new quill that had never been used before, write these letters for Yahweh, and throw it away and never use it for anything else again. That's how holy they thought God is. We can learn some lessons there, people, about how holy God is, how holy His name is, how holy His Word is. Exodus 27, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Why? Because his name is holy. In Revelation 4, 8, we're told this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Those, you know, created beings are there in heaven day in and day out, all day long, kneeling, worshiping God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We need to understand that He's holy. He's different. He's higher. He's greater than anyone else. That's what God is like. And other attributes, I'm just going to give you a quick shot. There's no way I could give you all the attributes of God anyway, as I said earlier. But in Exodus 34, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. Notice some things God tells us about himself. This is God speaking, telling us some things about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is a compassionate God. Aren't you glad? God is a gracious God. He's slow to anger. Thank God for that. If he wasn't slow to anger, he would have zapped me with a lightning bolt years ago. He's abounding in love. He's faithful. We can depend and trust in Him. He maintains love to thousands. He forgives wickedness. He forgives our sin. Thank God for that. That when we trust in Jesus, He forgives our sin. But He is also a just God. And that means short of Jesus, He will judge you for your sin. If you fail to receive Christ as Savior. That's just some other attributes. Just a quick shot of other attributes. Number three, three main, the third main thing I want us to talk briefly about this morning is this. What are some major doctrinal errors concerning the Trinity? Now, I know some of this is heady stuff. I told you up front, it's not entertaining. It's not what we're about today. We're trying to teach you some foundational things that you need to know. And just maybe sometime if you hear someone expounding some of these false doctrines, some of these errors, you will be wise enough to say, no, that's wrong. So what are some major doctrinal errors? I mean, there's several, but I'm just going to look at three main ones. Modalism. Modalism is one I've already referred to earlier. It's the teaching that there's one God, but he manifests himself or morphs himself or goes from one mode to the other. In other words, there's one God, but sometimes he's in the mode of the Father, and sometimes he's in the mode of the Son, and sometimes he's in the mode of the Spirit. But they really get kind of technical about modalism, so much so that they teach this. God was God the Father up until the incarnation of Jesus. Then he was God the Son. Then after the death, burial, and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, then he became God the Holy Spirit. They, they teach that he happens in most. See, that can't be true because we've already seen what? God exists at the same time. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all present in the Bible, present in the same scriptures, all actively doing something. So modalism is not correct. And, and if you ever hear someone put it like that, that is not correct because God is simultaneously active. Arianism is this, and you know, some of you have heard of, you know, like Aryan race, that's not what I was talking about. Uh, this is uh, a doctrinal belief that based on someone's theology by the name of Arian. But Arianism uh, <clears throat> is something that's really adopted uh, by, by the uh, Jehovah Witnesses. They hold, they hold this view. It, it teaches there's one God, and since there's only one God, that Jesus as the Son cannot be fully God, and the Holy Spirit cannot be fully God, so Jesus must be something less. I, I don't invite you to get in a debate with people a lot of times because if you have a Jehovah Witness knock on your door, you need to understand something in this area. They have been specifically trained in how to try and tear down the faith of a Baptist. reason I know that, my first full-time pastorate, they went and knocked on the door of one of my members. He lived right down the street, so they just assumed he probably went to that church, which they assumed right. But he invited them in, and when they sat there and they started talking to him, he lied to them, and he told them that he was an Orthodox Jew. They had no idea how to deal with an Orthodox Jew. They got up and left his house and never even said a word to him. Hadn't been taught how to deal with an Orthodox Jew. They had been taught how to tear the faith of a Baptist down. They just got up and left. But one of the points I have made with them before when they try to make it sound like they're just like me if they come to my door is that you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God in the same way I believe it. And they'll try to say, oh, yes, we believe he's the Son of God. No, they believe he's the Son of God in the same way that they think they can become sons of God or we can become sons of God. That's how they view it. They do not believe Jesus to be God in the flesh, eternal God, who's always lived and will always live. 
So they teach that Jesus is something less than God, which is an error. It's wrong that they hold to. Tritheism is this. Tritheism consists of three equal, dependent, and autonomous deities. In other words, tritheism is teaching that there are three gods. Not one god who reveals himself in three distinct persons who are all of the same substance because they're all God. They teach that there are three different gods, and that's the view that Mormonism holds because they're believing that they can become a god and have their own have their own universe, have their own planet to rule. Here's another doctrinal statement out of uh, Hodge's systematic theology. I, I, I started to say I hated this, this series of books. I didn't hate it because it taught me a lot of neat stuff. But, man, I hated reading three volumes. They're all about that thick. The prints are small. Like I said, I had to get reading glasses. I thought I was going to die that semester in Bible college. <clears throat> Here's something that's, that's said by a quote by E.A. Park. The doctrine of the Trinity does not, on the one hand, assert that three persons are united in one person, or that three beings in one being, or that three gods in one God. That's the tritheism we just talked about. Nor, on the other hand, that God merely manifests himself in three different ways. That's a modalism that we just talked about. But rather that there are three eternal, personal distinctions in the substance of God. I know that's mind-blowing, but I'm personally glad God is mind-blowing, aren't you? I'm personally glad that our God is so great that we cannot completely figure Him out. Now, I'm going to close by covering some things pretty quickly because I, I want us to close by looking at some practical applications to our lives from the Trinity. Because you may have been sitting here so far through this, and you're thinking, sounds like I'm in Bible class, sounds like I'm in Bible college, and you may be wondering, why does that matter to me? Why does any of this matter to me? In other words, you may not have been thus far in this series was just started today, riveted to your seat just by doctrinal truths, okay? Although you should be. So we need to... And the reason you should be is this. I, I would love for any time you defend your faith, I'd love for people to think about you and about this church that those people actually know what they're talking about. <clears throat> but what's some practical ways we can look at the Trinity and allow it to impact our lives? Here's the first one. The Trinity gives us a perfect example of humility. You have the Son willingly becoming flesh and willingly humbling himself before the Father. It gives us a picture. It teaches us humility. The, the, the Trinity operates in humility toward each other. It's not a prideful thing of me first or me first or, or me first. The, the Holy Spirit in, in humility... His primary reason that he sent is to teach us about Jesus. To remind us of the things that Jesus said. That's what Jesus said himself. To serve as our guide and our, and our comforter. But it's not like they're in competition with each other. There's humility there. And we can look at the Trinity and see that you and I need to practice humility toward other people. We also need to humble ourselves before God. Second practical application is this. The Trinity gives us a powerful example of love. We've kind of already talked about that. But I don't know if there's any clearer, stronger picture of love than the Trinity because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit always love each other. They, they exist, as I said earlier, in an eternal community of love. We can learn a lot of things about love just by looking at the Trinity. And the Bible tells us we're to love. The Bible tells us we're to love our family. We're to love our friends. We're to love our neighbors. The Bible even tells you you're supposed to love your enemy. Jesus said that. You're supposed to love your enemy. And we can learn a lot of lessons about love by, by looking at how God loves. See, God loves even though we didn't deserve it. I was a sinner. I deserve to go and spend eternity in hell. So do you. But God loved us enough to send His Son. 
So that tells me when I start thinking about loving other people, I don't need to love them because they're worthy of it. I need to love them simply because God tells me to love them. And I can learn a lesson of that by looking at how the Trinity loves within the confines of the Trinity. The Trinity also gives us great reasons for worship. Great reasons for worship. And here's why. The Trinity, as hopefully you've already recognized today, the doctrine of the Trinity is beyond finding out, completely and totally explaining, and being able to rationalize it in our mind like some kind of equation. And that means that our God is so big and so great and so huge that when I look at things like the Trinity, instead of being frustrated because I can't really figure it all out and I can't compact it in a little box that I can understand, instead of being frustrated, I ought to think, my goodness, how great God is. Instead of frustrating us or discouraging us, it ought to cause us to worship God. We have a God that, guys, to me, I've already said it in the message, but I want to stress this. The fact that I can't figure out everything about God to me is a positive note because if I could figure out everything about God, God would be smaller than I'd want Him to be. I'm glad He's so great I can't figure Him out. Now, if you have a problem with that, let me illustrate something. You can't figure out your spouse. You husbands cannot fully figure out your wives. Your wives cannot fully figure out your husbands, although you think you have. I can tell you because I am one. We got stuff banging around our head you don't even know about. If you knew about it, you'd beat us up over it. Because we're stinking men, just part of the way we're wired. You can't fully figure out your kids. Kids can't fully figure out their parents. But that doesn't mean we don't relate to each other. Just because you can't completely figure God out, you need to understand something. It ain't going to happen to start with. And it's a good thing that that's that's true. The Trinity teaches us to be relational. To be relational. Because you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being relational toward each other. We already saw this verse early. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When you read that in the Greek text, it gives this thought. God the Son and God the Father were face-to-face with each other in eternity. Relational with each other in eternity. And that's the way we are to be. We are relational beings. God didn't make you to be a hermit. Sometimes you might feel like going off by yourself, but you won't stay there very long. God built us and wired us as human beings to have the need for relationships just because He is a triune God, and that's the way He is made. He made us to need relationships. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all act in an eternal relationship with each other, and you and I need to be relational the trinity also teaches us this it teaches us unity and diversity unity and diversity it teaches unity because you have the father the son and the spirit one god it teaches diversity because you have the father son and the spirit and the way that ought to apply to us in our lives especially when it comes to the church that's how we ought to view ourselves By being part of the church, those of us that receive Christ as our Savior, we are unified. We are a part of one body. Jesus is the head. The church is His body. And just like my body is made up of, you know, different things because my hand has responsibilities, my eyes have responsibilities they were designed for. That's the way God makes the church. Everybody can't do everything, but we need everybody doing something because every one of you brings something to the plate at day three church to serving God that somebody else can't do because God wired you to do it. So the church is unity. The church is also diversity because even though we're all one in Christ and we're one body, we're different. And that's a good thing. Wouldn't it be boring if we were all the same? I mean, wouldn't it be? If we were all exactly the same? Some ailments might be nice because if everyone had as little bit of hair as I have on top of my head, then I wouldn't feel jealous when I see some of you that are blessed with hair all over the top of your head. 
if we all looked the same. But man, we get bored, and I'm glad we have the diversity. I'm, I'm really glad recently we're starting to see, you know, people, and we, we had always, every now and then, see some people, but we're starting to see them come back kind of regular, people of other races. You know why? God made all of us. Jesus died for all of us. I would love for this church to be a diverse church. And the Bible teaches us that as we look at the, at the Trinity. The Trinity also teaches us to be submissive. What did Jesus, God the Son, pray to God the Father when he was in Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. And he was looking at going to the cross. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. In the Trinity, you have a picture of the Son being submissive, the Holy Spirit being submissive, and we need to learn from that, that we need to be submissive to God. And guys, like it or not, we're to be submissive to each other and put others first. And the Trinity also teaches us that we ought to be joyful. We ought to be joyful. Why should we be joyful? Well, when you look at how the Trinity operates, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're happy with each other. They, they exist in eternal joy. They're happy with each other. And we ought to learn lessons from that and be happy with each other. That's one reason the Trinity ought to cause us to be joyful, but not just because God's happy in Himself, and we ought to be happy among ourselves as we relate to each other, but we ought to be joyful simply for this. We ought to be joyful that the Creator God, the great unknowing God of all the universe, chose to even reveal to Himself Himself to us as the Trinity. That ought to thrill our hearts and give us joy because God decided to show us the grand truth of himself being the triune God. Because in this, here's the deal. We have a father that loves us enough to send his son. We had a son who loves us enough to die on the cross and take his life back up to prove he had done everything necessary for our salvation. We have God the Spirit who loves us enough to convict us of our sin and when we receive Christ as our Savior, to come and live in our lives and guide us, and not just guide us, but the Bible teaches, keep us sealed until the day that we're in the very presence of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank Lord, we just thank you that you chose to reveal yourself to us. God, I pray in this series you'd wake us up and help us to see how vital it is for us to, to know truth about you. God, if we ever come to this place or any church just because we want to come and hear good music, or because we can come here and wear blue jeans instead of suits, or whatever the case might be. Father, if that's our motive, God, forgive us. God, we need to come because we love you, and we know you love us, and we want to know more about you, know you deeper, know you better. Live the reality of a relationship with you out in our lives in stronger ways. Father, I pray right now if there's someone here that does not know this God that we've talked about. God, right now help them to see that you love them enough as the Father to send your Son. Help them to see right now by faith that you love them enough that as the Son you died and you suffered and you paid with your shed blood for their sins. Help them to see right now that you as the Spirit love them enough to convict them right now and show them their need of receiving Christ. And Father, for those of us that already know Christ and we already have this relationship with you, God, God maybe we've 
maybe we've been guilty of taking it as old hat, as something second nature, as something that doesn't thrill us anymore as it should. God, forgive us of that and, and thrill us in this series with great truths about yourself. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I close by talking about how the Trinity ought to cause us to rejoice, make us joyful. Can I ask you a question? Are you joyful? Do you rejoice because God chose to reveal Himself to you as a triune God, as the Trinity? It begins, first of all, by knowing Him. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, your first step is to know this God, to get in a relationship with the one true God by receiving Christ as your Savior. And we'll talk more about this in this series, but you need to understand something. It's not your choice, it's His choice. And He's the one that draws you. I don't care what anyone thinks. If you think, no, I went and found God, the Bible says differently. And if you feel God drawing you, if, you're never, if you've never received Him as Savior, and you feel God drawing you, you need to come as He's drawing you because that's when you can come to Him, when He's drawing you to Himself. And you have that felt need, and you understand you need to trust Him. So if He's drawing you this morning as some of us never received Christ as your Savior, now's the time. I, I wouldn't waste it. What if He doesn't burden your heart and convict you next week? Or ever again. So if you need Christ as your Savior, please come. So you can know this God we've talked about. And for the rest of us that know Him, will you spend this time? You might need to spend it on your knees up here in prayer. But spend this time thanking Him. That there's a Father who loves you. A Son who died for you. A Spirit who lives in you. It's a band plays. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Day 3 Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.